From 90.7 WFAE, this is a Charlotte Talks public conversation, Charlotte homicides and their impact on the Queen City. I'm Mike Collins. We are 28 weeks into 2017, but at this moment, Charlotte has witnessed 49 homicides. That puts us on track to reach 95 murders this year, a third more than the 67 the city saw last year. Because there have been so many, almost two a week, the constant barrage of news stories may concern you, but also numb you to this alarming trend. To most of us, the rising body count is just another statistic, but we should not forget that behind those numbers are people, and not just the people who lost their lives, but the people who make up their families, their neighbors, their friends, and the community at large. Patrice Warren once saw those numbers and was concerned, but nothing more, until the numbers became personal when her brother was killed on January 4th. What I really want the community to know is that I feel like I've I've been guilty. And the one thing that I've been guilty of is not getting involved until it affected me. January 2nd, Nathaniel Jose Rodriguez. January 3rd, Anthony Lee Frazier and Shanika Simpson. January 4th, Jabari Stewart. January 12th, Massaquai Cote. Milton Ricardo Graham. January 13th, Thomas Lewis Betty Jr. January 19th, Majestic Cancade Bush. January 26th, Stephen Gregory White. February 14th, David Byron Eady. February 15th, Walter Scott Jr. February 19th, Christian Isaac Allen. February 22nd, David Earl Brennan. February 24th, Brian Jaquan Thompson. March 14th, Germany Joaquin Byers. March 16th, Ferelian Perdoma. March 17th, Yesenia Elena McMillan. DeAndre Terrell Olson. March 21st, Carson David Christian Jr. March 22nd, Tyshad Nikise Brown. March 24th, Michael Xavier Morris. March 28th, Lehman Moore. April 1st, Jarrell Grace. April 2nd, Ruby and Curtis Atkinson. April 5th, Jennifer Renee Smith and Kevin Marquise. April 10th, Marcella Leitner Thrash. April 26th, Michael Anthony Barnwell. May 3rd, Tierra Clark. May 16th, Keith Lawrence Ross. May 25th, Marlo Jonas Medina Chavez. May 26th, Julian Ray Williams. May 27th, Anderson David Biggers. May 29th, Bobby Edward Wesley Jr. and Davion Antonio Andrews. June 3rd, Archie McGill. June 4th, Lucas Lorenzo Baldwin. June 5th, William Weddington and Aiden Blackman. June 12th, Cornell LaMarche Bridges. June 15th, Cornelius Drayton. June 18th, Zachary Joseph Finch. June 20th, David Sean Lindsay and Sanchez McClure. June 24th, Jarrett Chapman. July 2nd, Nelson Bismar Sosa. July 3rd, 
Tommy Jared Maddox. Harold Rudolph Jones. On the radio, that may sound like a list of dates and names, but here at Friendship Missionary Baptist Church, where this public conversation is taking place, or to those watching us on Facebook Live, we saw the faces of the people to whom those names belonged, men, women, children, black, white, Latino. Seeing those faces gives a human dimension to the problem we'll be talking about this hour, and those listening to this broadcast can see what we just saw at our website at WFAE.org or on our YouTube page. This hour we examine the problem, we meet the people who have been affected directly by these murders, or some of them, and find out about some of the things people in the community are trying to do to end this mounting stream of senseless, violent acts. And you can join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. To start us off, we are joined once again by CMPD Chief Kerr Putney. Thank you for being with us again. Thank you for having me. How alarmed are you by what you've been witnessing this year? Um, I don't know that I'd say alarmed. I'm just frustrated, I'm disappointed. And um, uh, we keep talking about the number and how the numbers increase. Well, what we don't say enough about is the families impacted. We have a significant um, number of, of families being impacted by homicide this year than we've had in the last uh, 10 years by rate. Uh, what that means is we have people dying. And the other thing is you talked about the, the uh, races and ethnicities of people uh, who are impacted. And uh, I'm sorry, I just feel like um, adding context that troubles me most. 80% of the victims are black. It's a problem that's impacting us uh, disproportionately. If we don't wake up, and stop talking about it and start doing about it, doing something about it, um, it's going to get worse. 73% uh, of the suspects uh, are black. So we have issues that we have to break the cycle of. And, and what we're trying to do, and I don't want to go there too soon, is we're trying to show people uh, hope, opportunity, and uh, people keep talking about what matters. Their life matters. Right. But what we see is there's a deficit in understanding that, and uh, understanding the gravity of it. Um, we say, we talk a lot about what we hate and what we dislike, but what we shy away from is talking about what we love. And what I love is giving people opportunity. We have 30 kids right now going through our uh, initial um, Envision Academy. We're employing them. They're kids that you normally wouldn't be hiring because they had a brush with the law. They made a mistake, they're kids. What you didn't hear in uh, in this briefing, and I hate to talk too much, but I got a lot to say tonight, and you invited me, I didn't ask to be here, is 50% of them are ages 18 to 34. So this is, is, is taking away our future. So we gotta, we gotta stop talking about it and start doing something about it. We gotta break the cycle. We gotta give people skills to uh, resolve conflicts without killing each other. And we're going, to talk so, about, we're going to talk about all of that as we go through this. Program. Okay, I don't want to get ahead of you, but I, I'm, I'm not very patient tonight. But that's Let's okay. go. Let's go. You can preach. It's all right. Uh, I'm in church. I think it's okay. Let's put this. We are at church. Let's put this in perspective. Our homicide rate is higher this year than it has been in recent years, but it's not at an, at an historic high. Uh, do you have any theories why that the crime rate and specifically the homicide rate kinds of it acts like a roller coaster? Is there anything that you can tie it to? Uh, nothing specific. There are a lot of variables. Um, uh, we're talking about uh, when I first came on in the early 90s, 
we saw it peaked. Uh, we saw uh, 120 plus homicides. Uh, what we saw too, though, is from um, about 95 to 2005, we saw a significant decline, and then we saw a, another uptick. We went from uh, about 60 uh, plus homicides up to 85. And again, it shocks the conscience. And in those years where we had higher uh, homicide rates, was it also true that 80% of them were black on black? That, that con that's been consistent. Yes, that was the reason for the Homicide Task Force back in 2005. Consistently, um, we as blacks are the victims of homicide more often and also the suspects disproportionately. But also what you have to look at is uh, those are the demographics that people stop talking about and, and just rest there is deeper than that. You have to look at social economic opportunities, educational opportunities as multifaceted. And we keep wanting to pick and pull at one piece of it and not heal the whole, whole issue. We just want to deal with symptoms. And when we, here in the hall, when we looked at the film, uh, at, the, at the video, and when we heard that list of names, uh, those people who lost their lives were young, they were old, they were black, they were white, they were male, they were female. But as you say, 80% were black uh, victims, many of them, most, most of them young, under 30 years old, most of them male. So when you pull those statistics out, male, young, black, and the fact that they knew their perpetrator, what does that tell you? Um, and roughly three-quarters of them, they knew their perpetrator. So what we see is, and this is what we're doing with our Community Relations Committee here in Charlotte, uh, we're trying to uh, improve the skill set that we see a huge void in, and that is people being able to resolve conflicts, minor conflicts, without escalating the violence. And I know it sounds like um, that, that's, that's easy to see and it's low-hanging fruit, but it's really not. Uh, you have people who are, um, I think, just devoid of hope. They're frustrated, too, with a lot of circumstances, and they're resorting to things that we don't even uh, believe make sense to resolve these conflicts because all they think they have sometimes is their self-respect. And if they feel you've disrespected them, then uh, that's an ultimate um, penalty that has to be paid, and we're trying to break that cycle by teaching them some res re resolution, conflict resolution skills, bringing them in to have a conversation. I think a conversation can spark a movement, and then they can see that there are ways to resolve those minor conflicts without taking a life. Mm. What percentage of the people committing these murders and the percentage of the people who perhaps were murdered have previous records? Uh, vast majority, um, in excess of 80%. Of the uh, murderers, uh, of the of the of the suspects you're talking about, right? Yes, uh, vast. I'm sorry, about seventy percent. But the other thing that we see is, um, uh, in this year, two of them, uh, the suspects had been charged with murder previously. So some of this is repeat offenders, but the vast majority are just uh, people who know each other, uh, eighteen to thirty-four, who um, are resolving minor conflicts by escalating to to gun violence. In thirty-six. Uh, of those 49, uh, over 70% involved handguns. And when you plot these out on a map, as we have at WFAE, and you can see that on our website, uh, another pattern emerges. They're mostly in the northern part of the city uh, and the western part of the city. They're in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. Uh, and that, that should be a clear sign that something is wrong. In those neighborhoods uh, where these are happening, is there a pattern, aside from poverty, is there something we can extract from that? There's a lot. I don't know how much time you want to dedicate to it, but uh, I say look at 
um, the graduation rates. Look at the, um, you can track it. Look at the literacy rates for uh, people in, in that region by third grade. If they're reading on uh, reading level by third grade, uh, you don't have to worry about them going to prison. They're building prisons based on the reading level of third graders. So if you look educationally at the opportunity in the, in the literacy in that area, it overlays perfectly. Is it the schools that are failing those young people? Because I've, I've witnessed Listen, this. It's, it's us as adults failing these people. It's us failing these people. It's, it's the truth. Um, it's, a, it's a humanity issue. It's a parenting issue. It's a role modeling issue. It's not a system or a program. I'm sorry, government's not going to save us. Another program's not going to save us. We have to save ourselves, and we have to do so by putting our actions behind our words, showing people that we can resolve minor conflicts, and then having them uh, replicate that behavior. We've got to stop talking about it and start doing something about it, more than just bl blaming somebody else. That's what I think, sir. But these neighborhoods that we're talking about where most of these murders occur are also neighborhoods that are, I think, uh, an example of the, of the problem that we have in Charlotte with social mobility. And we, we, the big study came out that says if you're born poor in Charlotte, chances are you will die poor in Charlotte. Your chances of rising through the ranks of economic prosperity are just about nil. Uh, what role does that play? Is it, is it that, that's what you're talking about when you're saying hopelessness, that's, that, right? That's, that's a part of it. That's but one small part. Um, I spoke to um, the um, internship that we just started in this 30 young kids who didn't feel they have hope. Now we're going to pay them $1,500 for eight weeks in the summer. It equates to 15 bucks an hour. So when we get to where it's not a livable wage, we send them home because uh, we're trying to teach them their value, their worth. You don't trade your time for less than what it takes to survive on. Uh, what we're also doing is ensuring them the opportunities across the public sector, the private sector that is available to them. We teach them how to interview. We teach them how to shake hands and look another person, male in particular, in the eyes. We teach them how to give respect to get it. We teach them life skills, yeah. and, and we also give them the opportunity to pull themselves out. We're not giving a hand. We're giving them an opportunity, and we're paying them because um, if we don't pay them, they're going to find ways to afford the issues that they encounter. So I'm just saying that is one way to model what we're doing, and all that was privately funded. Um, if, if another bank's in here, I apologize, but B of A, Bank of America funded it, as did Hugh McCall. I did a call to action and they stepped up because, again, I don't think the government's going to save us. If they were, it happened already. Mm. We got we to put it, roll our own sleeves up. One of the things that you've talked about. Thank you, brother. Thank you. One of the things that you have talked about and one of the recurring themes that we'll probably see tonight or hear tonight is the ready availability of guns and the willingness to use them on a dime for little to no reason. Uh, well, let me play, play devil's advocate here. We are, we're in a Second Amendment country, sure. and there are a whole lot of people who own guns that never pull the trigger in the face of another human being. What's the difference? What's happening here that the, it's so easy to take a life? Here is in Charlotte? Or with our problem, yes, in, okay. in these communities. Well, I was going to say the, the problem's not specific to Charlotte. It's all across the country. Right. Um, and a lot of other communities have similar issues. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to compare them 
compare us to them. I think we're in better shape than people would lead you to believe. But what I think the issue is, most importantly, is um, responsible gun owners, gun owners, they're never a part of this conversation. If you're locking your gun up, if, you're, if you have it legally and you're taking care of it so it doesn't fall into the wrong hands, it's not a problem. But what we're seeing is people are being irresponsible. And also, to be quite frank, I'm not a politician, but we're talking about legislation that can also add to that problem. If we're not vetting people to make sure you should lawfully have this weapon, we're going to say you just turn 18 and now you're man or woman enough to get a gun, I think is uh, going to contribute to the problem even more so. And that is legislation that just passed the North Carolina House. But I, think, I think some of the laws uh, we need to speak up to stop before they pass because it's only going to make it worse. But the legal ownership of guns doesn't seem to be the problem. It seems to be the illegal ownership of well, guns. Well, I think the irresponsible legal ownership and the illegal ownership, and they go hand in hand. If you legally have a gun and leave it where I can steal it, then you're just as guilty as contributing as anybody else. So we're preaching responsible legal gun ownership, and the illegals, we're, we're seizing them, trying to take those out of the uh, people's hands who shouldn't have them. But, but a lot of the conflicts, and you've alluded to this to already tonight, a lot of the conflicts that we're seeing being resolved with the pulling of a trigger used to be resolved in a fist fight or a shouting match or a wrestling match or, or something benign. How did we get here? Well, what I can place? tell you, um, I, I hear that a lot, and I think that's, uh, that has some merit if you go back, you know, 40 or 50, de uh, four, uh, four or five decades. Well, I'm old. Right. I, it's okay. I'm, I, I didn't say that. I'm old, too, and this job is in dog years, trust me. But what I alluded to is in the early 90s, in the early 2000s, we've had similar issues. So um, people have responded responsibly when given the opportunity throughout time recently over the last two to three decades so I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say there's no hope. What I say, though, is um, we got to get serious on both ends, uh, making sure people who shouldn't have weapons and have them illegally, um, we're not going to clap when they have those guns. We're going to support local law enforcement for seizing them. And the other thing is those people who are irresponsible legal gun owners, there should be a consequence for them as well. I want um, it, you got to go both ways. You can't lay it at any one person's uh, one side's feet. We have about two minutes left in this segment, and I want to go back. I got to a lot more to say. I'm I know sorry. we'll, we'll be here for the whole hour, uh, so you'll have a chance to say it. But I want to go back to something you said earlier, and that's the whole issue of respect, the, the seeking of respect, and the uh, uh, the pulling of a trigger because you felt you are disrespected. Talk about that. Why has that become such? a hair-trigger moment for people. Again, I wish there were a simple uh, re a response and answer to that, but it's a multitude of things, many of which we've talked about. Um, if you see that you have no opportunity to better your situation, you become desperate. Hopelessness is one of the worst things you can bestow upon a kid. And we're, it's the truth. And what we're seeing is we're putting people in that kind of position. Kids aren't they don't ask to be born in a certain situation, but uh, here they are. What we have to do as a community is rally around all kids, especially the 18 and to 34-year-olds who are losing their lives um, like you wouldn't believe. It's almost like we would be at war on a specific demographic. We have to, as a community, say, your life matters, we care about you, and here's how we show you. We're going to give you an opportunity to have an internship, even if you've made that first mistake. Uh, by his grace, we all are in different positions as we sit here. 
Let's not sit here just in judgment. Let's reach out and help some of these people who need the help most. Let's give them that opportunity. CMPD Chief Kerr Putney, who will be with us for the entire hour as this public conversation on the homicide count in Charlotte continues. We're broadcasting live from Friendship Missionary Baptist Church. When we come back from the break, we will be talking about two people or two two people who have been directly affected by all of this. It's WFAE's Charlotte Talks. Our Charlotte Talks public conversation on homicide and its impact on our city continues from Friendship Missionary Baptist Church and on WFAE. I'm Mike Collins. At the beginning of this program, I mentioned that the steady stream of homicides can numb us to the rising tide of tragedy. But what makes these murders tragic isn't is that they are not statistics. They are people, people who lost their lives and people who lost loved ones. Earlier, we heard the voice of Patrice Warren, whose brother Jabari Stewart was the fourth person to be murdered in Charlotte in 2017. WFAE reporter Sarah D'Elia has been working to frame all of this in a human context through a series of reports, and she spoke with Patrice and her husband, Anthony Warren, about their loss. Jabari was Patrice's younger brother. He introduced her to her husband, Anthony. And while he was alive, Jabari acted as a sounding board for Anthony. The story of their loss is a perfect example of the impact these killings have. I relocated here because he was here and um, to be near him. And so that also puts uh, in my mind, do I stay here now? Um, there are memories here, but I, I believe because there is no closure, it's hard for me to uh, enjoy the memories. Instead, I'm kind of um, dreadful to go into areas and places here in Charlotte that I've been because it's so painful. The wound is still open. We're here, but we aren't here. You, you know what I mean? That's like all that I was doing as far as working in the community, all the things that I wanted to do and all the desires that I had, it's empty. It's just, you know, so I don't feel as connected because Jabari isn't here. And we're, we're just in a place now where I want to leave, my wife wants to leave, but we also want to be here because we want to find out what happened. And I know the family needs to be present once they find out what happens, once they find out, once they start going to court, because we want justice and we want to be there and we want to let, you know, the district attorney know and all, you know, all the people, the judges and everybody know that Jabbar had family and he was a great man. Most of the family members of other homicide victims would say similar things about their loved ones and about how loss has affected those around them. Judy Williams knows this all too well. She lost a loved one who died at the hands of a serial killer. To deal with that tragedy and to help others in similar situations, she co-founded Mothers of Murdered Offspring in 1993, and we welcome you back to the program. Thanks for being here. Thank you. On June 20th, David Lindsay, a popular figure in the community and a barber at the No Grease Barber Shop, was murdered. His friend and associate, Damian Johnson, the co-owner of No Grease Barbershop, is also with us now. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And as I said, CMPD Chief Kerr Putney is lingering here to, to be with us for the rest of the show. Still hovering. Yeah. When, what you hear in Patrice and Anthony Warren's story is the ripple effect, just the beginning of a ripple effect of the loss of, of, of a human being through murder. And Judy, you've worked with far too many people who have been impacted by this and who have experienced this kind of loss. What does the toll take on them immediately and over time? 
immediately families go through shock. I mean, I don't think people who pull the, the trigger of a gun realize what they are getting ready to do to a whole family. Um, they, it's disbelief. They have to kick their life in a gear that they never thought they would. They have to grieve why they make funeral arrangements. They have to somehow pick up their, pick themselves up and continue on in a life that's completely different now. It will never be the same again. Not ever. Uh, they are, they're struggling to um, find a new normal, if that's even possible. Some people don't find it. Some people um, have nervous breakdowns. Some um, just die from the grief eventually. Um, and then for those who don't even know who committed the act, that's, it's like a double trauma because now they have to walk through the streets and wonder, did that person do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? You know, are you the one? I mean, that's a crazy life to live. And that's what families are going through. And it's not just the immediate family. It's the work family. It is the neighborhood family, people who live in the, in the area who knew them. It's the church family who has to deal with it. It's the everybody law. involved. I mean, there is no way that it doesn't touch. In fact, it touched people who may not even know them because we've had candlelight services where people just happened by because they saw the candles. And they're affected because they realize, hey, something is going on here that's, that these people are hurting. There's pain here. A lot of tears. David Lindsay wasn't part of your immediate family, no. but he was part of your family, your work family. Absolutely. Are, are you going through this? It only happened on June 20th. Yeah. Uh, so we've known Dave since he was 18 years old. Mm. Uh, he died right before his 30th birthday. So we, we were part of his development as a young man. He, he went to our barber school and uh, won, won a... Uh, a scholarship to go to barber school, and you know, from then on, he became a very successful barber and very talented. You, I think, you described him as a genius when yeah, it comes to cutting a hair. A genius when it came to the art of barbering. He was just one of those main figures in the industry that people in the country had known about. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was, uh, he was, he was like a little brother to us. So we watched him develop as a young man. Uh, so yeah, he was, he was family to us. For people who in these communities where this seems to happen on an all too often basis. This is not news to them. Everything that the two of you have just said, people have lived through, they have experienced. Why isn't that having an impact? I mean, if you live in an area where people are shooting other people regularly, and you're seeing how this, what this does to people, why isn't that acting as a deterrent of some sort? Judy. And, and then because it, you, you don't really get involved in it until it happens to you. Once it happens to you, it takes on an entirely um, different feeling, a different everything. Because I know when we started back in 93, I mean, I was sitting at home watching the homicides occur, one after another. Uh, 1992, 101 homicides. Uh, 19, um, 1991, 99 homicides. I mean, we were living through this, but yet it didn't get our attention until it was my Shauna. It was my goddaughter. Then it got my attention. Yeah. 
And then you go, um, you know, how could this happen? How could this happen? This doesn't happen in my family. Oh, yeah, it can happen in your family. And, it, and, and eventually it will touch everybody's family if we don't get involved. And all because, over the country, and you've alluded yeah. to this in the last segment, uh, Chief, uh, all over the country, this is principally black on black. This is like self-imposed genocide. Well, um, well, what I'll say is strong word. I'm it sorry. is a strong word because we're, we're acting like um, a lot of systems haven't failed black people in particular throughout. I mean, we, we're, we're acting like we just arrived at this issue and now in 2017, oh my gosh, let's do something about it uh, because what's going on? Uh, as, as, as they eloquently said, this impacts everybody that knows that person. And uh, what I applaud is everybody who's here because you may not have been touched, but ob obviously this resonates with you. Uh, what we're missing, though, is um, celebrating some of the very things that are going to help us get out of this. And that is the positive things that are going on in Charlotte that nobody really is talking about. Um, out of pain comes an organization that supports homicide victims more than any other organization I'm aware of. Uh, and you're, uh, you're referring to Judy's organization. Absolutely. Uh, Mother Judy. Against Murdered Offspring. Absolutely. Uh, love what she stands for, love what she's doing. But uh, my point about the systems, though, is when you lose confidence in everything that you're told should be protecting you and providing opportunities and, and everything else, um, you lose hope. And you get, as I said before, you get desperate and you think you're the only person you have who's going to defend you and defend your respect and maintain it and everything else. Um, we act like that is hard to understand, but it's not. You make, you make anybody, any individual, let's not talk about groups, but any individual desperate, he or she will do anything they have to do to survive. And we're, we're struggling with a lot of that. Sure, Jerry, go ahead. I just want, want to say this, that, you know, this is like deja vu for me because we've been here before. I want you to know in 93, we did the same thing. Yes, ma'am. We had these uh, meetings. We had the town hall meetings. We did all of that. And it got better for a while, but somehow we just, it seems to slip back. And somehow we've got to find a way to keep that from happening this time. We're having a meeting tonight. We're having a public conversation. And, Damien, a lot of conversation takes place in a barbershop. Absolutely. So I'd like to know, prior to this incident that involved your barbershop, what kind of conversations were going on in those chairs about the problem we're talking about tonight? So as a, as a black man, being 44 years old, this is nothing new. Uh, my whole life, we've been trying to be proactive about these types of things. And, you know, historically, you know, America has, has always been in this situation with, with people of color. And, uh, you know, it was lynching at one point. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we had these type of rallies around lynching at a time. Uh, so to me, it's a system that has been, you know, designed at some point in America that put us in this place. And if we don't come up with a system to, uh, to change that, then we'll be talking about this 10 years from now. So, I mean, we have to be strategic and just as systematic as the system that got us here. 
to, to, to change this. So be, be specific about the system that got us here. You mentioned it. The chief mentioned it. Talk about the system. Let's bring it into the light. Well, in the barbershop, we, you know, we, we always talk about the man, uh, how the man got us here. And in some cases, I understand, you know, from uh, if you're born, like the chief said, you, you, you can't choose where you was born, how you was born, the system. That, but, you know, the challenges that the average, specifically I'm talking about black men, the, the challenge that they have is, is mounted up way above the average. They, the black man is probably the most misunderstood human being on the planet. Mm. He has every set of challenges that you could possibly think of. And I, I, and I, I don't say that because I'm black. I, I talk to black men, I'm like, well, you got some challenges. And so it's, it's something that you know, we deal with as a, as a, as a people. And if we don't uh, you know, systematically, you know, if the government or if the powers that be don't come and sit at the table with us and help us genuinely solve the problem, then either A, get out my way, or, you know, help me. Mm -hmm. That's right. uh, Judy, you've called for tougher laws because you say a lot of the people committing these murderers, and we've already talked about this too, are repeat offenders. Uh, if that's true, uh, uh, and that a lot of these perpetrators have lengthy rap sheets, do you agree, Chief Putney, that we should have tougher laws? <laughs> I, uh, I believe we should use the ones that we already have. Yeah. Um, I, seriously, I, we, I, I can't say this enough. We keep acting like one of these conversations is going to be the little nugget that we missed. They don't exist. Um, what we need to be doing is modeling what we see, want our kids to, to, to emulate. Um, and, and I can tell you, we act like um, this is insurmountable because you know you you can sell papers and have more listeners but it is not um it is a lot of heavy lifting um and and here's the other thing this is tough we're going to have to have people who have a lot of influence give up some of this authority and power and allow some people who don't to have a seat at the table as the brother said and that's simple i'm not asking you to tutor or, or or spend time with kids that you're afraid of. What I am asking you to do uh, is fund those, exactly, fund those who are willing to do the work to do it for the people that you might be afraid of. I'm not going to say, come by y'all and let's overcome everything. What I'm going to say is, if you have financial means, support the work that needs to be done that, that changes these outcomes. And then you get out of the way and shut your mouth. And let those of us who are willing to change outcomes do so. If all you can contribute is your money, do so. I don't need your opinion, though, but give us the money to make things happen. Who's, uh, for, for, for the benefit, for the benefit I, of people listening. I'll be listening. this specific. I had the same conversation with people talking about, Chief, what, what are we going to do to prevent more riots in Charlotte? I said, I'm in a bank. Give people opportunities to have jobs that you normally wouldn't hire. And they did. And so the first 30 are going through right now who are getting, getting the opportunity that they otherwise never would have had. I don't want to keep talking about banning and banning the box. I want to get rid of that box. But my point is everybody has a role to play. Yes. And I'm saying you don't have to be intimate if it scares you. If you have financial means, give it to the people who need to do the work on the ground. Everybody can't handle that. 
Stay in your lane and do your role. <laughs> Judy Williams, you have dealt with families from various different backgrounds and all kinds of situations. Uh, Damian Johnson, you in, in your business life and probably in your personal life too, but certainly in that barbershop, mm -hmm. you deal with a lot of people that you probably normally wouldn't even talk to on the street. Is there a com what's the common thread of humanity that goes through all of these people that we should recognize that might help us to see the value in everybody? Damien. Most people want to be, you know, heard. They want to be listened to. Uh, when I talk to young men, uh, that, that word that we use is hope. Is, you know, it's a, it's a real simple thing, but if you, if you listen to a person's conversation of what they might want to achieve in life and you just listen to them that can just change their life uh it's just a lot of things that we think is common that's not really common people are not really doing the the humanity that they think they are you know even giving your money that's that's part of it but it's it's more to a human being than giving them money no question so i mean working with an individual real as a barber is is it's probably become natural to me to listen to people and hear them all the way out, hear their truth, not the truth I want to give them, but really hear their truth, uh, I've learned that that's, that changes their life. That, that, I'm sure I've had a, a killer in my chair that probably didn't kill somebody that day because I listened to them. Let me jump into um, about the money. Could you raise your hand if you're a part of a nonprofit that does work trying to prevent these kind of outcomes? What I'm saying about money is those who can afford it should be supporting that work. Because if we're really committed about changing outcomes, brother, you're right. But that's where the hope is. I'm saying is if you have a check and you don't, don't want to do the work you, yourself, you have people who are willing to do it. But that's what it's going to take. I think everybody needs to contribute a talent. I want to thank Judy Williams and Damian Johnson for participating in this part of the conversation. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what is being done and what still needs to be done to get a handle on this problem as our public conversation on the homicide count in Charlotte continues from the Friendship Missionary Baptist Church on WFAE. Our Charlotte Talks public conversation on homicide and its impact on our city continues from Friendship Missionary Baptist Church on Charlotte Talks on 90.7 WFAE. I'm Mike Collins. So Charlotte's homicide count continues to rise. The impact is rippling through the community and the causes are a bit blurry. No one knows exactly why there is an ebb and flow to this kind of violence, but one thing is clear. Disputes that used to be settled with a shouting match or perhaps a fistfight are now being rashly settled, and permanently so, with guns. Work toward changing that is coming from several different fronts. CMPD has designed programs to offer alternative means of conflict resolution. Chief Kirk Putney remains on the panel to talk about that and some of the other approaches his, apartment, his department is taking. Gemini Boyd has been on both sides of this. He was sentenced at age 16 for his role in a 1990 shooting and served time for that involvement. Today, he is a community activist and founder of Project BOLT, which is an acronym for Building Outstanding Lives Together. That's a Youth Intervention Foundation. Thank you for being here. Yes, thank you. And Julie Iselt is a member of Charlotte City Council. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Mike. Before we talk about efforts in the community to reverse the rising homicide trend, let's talk about the use of deadly force for just a second. Most of these murders are committed using guns, and guns have an instant 
devastating and sometimes everlasting effect. You were, Gemini, involved as a kid in such a situation, and, and one of the problems here, it seems to me, is that perpetrators don't really consider what happens beyond the moment that they pull the trigger. Aside from incarceration, do people who pull the trigger feel the impact of what they've done? Uh, I wouldn't say that they actually understand what they did. i say that first because when I was 16 years old and I did what I did, it led to something greater down the line because the part that you might have missed out on was that 14 uh, April last year, I was just released after doing 20 years of federal prison. And what I've come to believe is that uh, as a child, we look, we, we're trying to find this, this, this situation to prevent. This is our big word that we use in dealing with crime, poverty, and things of that nature. This is the key word is prevent. And what, have I, what I've came to study and understand is that I believe that as a child, as five years old, they're suffering from what I call post-incarceration syndrome. And they're suffering because they're witnessing their mother, their father, or whatever go through a situation because, like the chief said, it's not, you, you can't count on where you're from or how you come into this world. We can't hold that effect. You feel what I'm saying? So once, once this problem occurs as a child, he starts to accept that he can be incarcerated. So therefore, he has no fear of the police. As he gets older, he has no fear of life, whether it's his or taking the other life. You feel what I'm saying? So I believe that word prevention has to start at a very young age, especially in the black communities. Yeah. This, is, this is our big problem. How young? Five years old. Because most of the people that are sitting in this room right now that are people of color, they either know someone that's incarcerated or they've been around someone that's incarcerated. And when they've been around that person that was incarcerated, they probably can look back to when they was a child and knew and can remember seeing the police do this and do that. So we have to start working with our kids at a very young age and try to help them understand that, you know, sometimes people go to jail for doing bad things. We understand that. But let me make sure that I understand and our listeners understand what you're talking about when you say post-incarceration syndrome. What you're saying is the people in this community from the age of five up for the last 20, 25, 30 years, when we started getting tough on crime, when we started prosecuting a war on drugs that hasn't seemed to work very well, what you're saying is, if I'm, if I'm right about this, is that we have normalized uh, interactions, negative interactions with police. We have normalized being in jail. Is exactly, that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Because what I'm telling you is that from that age, they start to accept being incarcerated they don't even know they're incarcerated at five years old but they're suffering from something at that age because they witness their mother their father whoever go to jail they witness the police come in you wonder why a child as he grows up as a teenager you wonder why he says he don't like the police or he can't stand the police because at five years old, he may have witnessed his mother, his father being incarcerated by the police. Or he have, may have witnessed the police come into their neighborhood and do, lock someone up that they looked up to. You feel me? So we have to start treating these kids at a young age and help them understand that, you know, what that person did was something that was bad. The guy that's coming to lock them up, 
isn't a bad guy. He just has a job to do. So we have to, we, we, that prevention, it starts then. It, all these medical researchers, we've been doing all these studies. We've overlooked the child. And 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when mass incarceration hit the United States, this is what we're suffering from right now. Okay. These murders that we're going through right now, we're suffering from them because we locked up all the leaders in the communities with these crazy drug laws. You have people sitting in prison right now with life sentences and ain't never got caught with no drugs at all. And you're wondering why our community can't be lifted up. Because as black males, we have no figure. So at 10 and 12 years old, they leading each other now. And they don't know how to lead each other because they're children. So how can they lead each other? Julie, I'd like to get, you're a politician and crime and homicide, the homicide count is going to be a, play a role in the mayor's race. Although the mayor has absolutely very little power in, in that uh, to do anything about it. What's your reaction to that? Well, um, I have a very strong reaction to it because that's why I ran for office in the first place. Public safety has been what I've been an advocate involved in that space for the past 10 years. And I think that the things that Gemini is talking about are things that our community has got to pay a lot more attention to. We go out and we do these task force studies and we you know, bring in experts. And what he just said right now is the information we have to listen to and we need Gemini. At have the you table. heard it before? Yes, I have. I have. There's a documentary that um, called... 53208, I think, or sorry, 28208. That's the zip code in Milwaukee that has the most incarcerated people in the country, and it, it follows the families of those, of those individuals and, and the damage it does to those children, to the siblings, to the spouses, in a whole family structure when one person is incarcerated. What do you see as the root cause of this homicide rate, not only in this city, but throughout the country? Well, it, we, have a, we have a gun culture in our country. Right. I mean, we know this. We it, we don't want to acknowledge it from a political standpoint, but um, the CDC has tried to do research and treat it like a public health crisis, which is what it is. And and Congress said no, that's too political. So there's no research even on how to look into this and say what are we going to do about it when we know it's a societal issue and it's a public health crisis in some neighborhoods more than others. This is so multifaceted. We we will only scratch the very one cell deep surface of all of this, but one of the things that CMPD has been trying to do is teach conflict resolution options. How's that going? Is it working? Is it difficult to get people who need it the most to come and be part of it? Actually, this is work from the um, um, Community Relations Committee, and we're partnering with them. They're the experts. They train our people, um, and it's slow moving initially. Uh, they've been doing it for quite a while. Uh, our, our issue is this. We're trying to, you, you talk about mapping. Um, the only way to resolve conflict or mediate is both parties have to be willing. So there's some difficulty there. You can't force conflict resolution or mediation on people. So what we're trying to do is get people of credibility in those communities. We're trying to train them themselves and let them be the, uh, the ground game, the people who can actually connect with people who, who need these skills and, and start doing that work. Uh, we're starting that, um, and we've mapped too, but ultimately what we're looking at is areas that we have a lot of um, role models who say, I want to help heal my, my uh, neighborhood. Uh, and then we connect with them, get them the training, get them the skill sets, and then they replicate that. Uh, it's slow moving, but it's work that's worthwhile. And I'll tell you this, we're, we're a, a soundbite culture. So, Chief, what are you going to do? Good Lord, we're having people kill themselves all the time. What are you going to do about it? 
I'm planting seeds so 10 years ago, you're not asking the same question that we're asking right now. Mm. We're trying to divert, we divert over 700 people a year out of the system completely so that they don't have to fight to get a job and get employment at that first job. So those are things that we're trying to do. That's how we're trying to uh, approach it, and it's slow moving. This term that you used, Gemini, a few seconds ago, post-incarceration syndrome, is something that most of our listeners have probably never heard. If you, when you begin to explain out what you, what you did, they, they, they've probably seen a documentary about it, but most of them have never heard it. Let me, let me quote back to you some of the other things that you have said that they probably haven't heard. And you said this a second ago, that a lot of these people have no fear of the law, no respect for themselves or others. Uh, you say they, that many of them think prison is where they are supposed to be. Exactly. That's shocking. I mean, but it's the truth. It's shocking to you, but it's the truth. Hmm. Because I witness it every day. And I did 20 years in federal prison. And as I started doing time in federal prison, they were getting younger and younger. So me and some other guys would just do our own personal survey and we would ask them, like, what caused this for you to want to follow in someone's footsteps? And most of them would say, well, you know, my uncle, my father, he was incarcerated. So as a child, not, and, and this is the key, not only is that child incarcerated, but whoever is doing time with the individual that's incarcerated is incarcerated. Mm. Because they going through all, they feel all the pain that this person is going through. So we have no one for these kids right now. We have no one for these kids. And you expect something, you expect us to walk over there and turn that light switch on and off right now, think, like that's the cure of all what's going on. But the root of our problems start with the babies. We have to do as a community, as a society, as in a whole, we have to do something for our kids at a younger age. We have to recognize and we have to know, like Chief said, they know about how the prison is they're going to build from the reading uh, grade level that a child is on. That's deep. When, when a child is hauled away in handcuffs because of something they have allegedly done, and that becomes a badge of honor, that means that crime has no shame attached to it. What's your reaction to that, Julie? How does the city any city, fight that. So I, I think Ms. Williams and Chief alluded to this before. We've been here before. We've seen this. We did a uh, homicide task force in 2005 and a criminal justice task force in 2008. And I've looked at most recently, I've looked at the recommendations to see what did we do? What did we do from these recommendations? And a lot of them we haven't addressed. And one of them was getting involved early with the schools and teach these things in the schools. Um, and one of them, frankly, is that the city and the county have got to work better with the state as well, but that's a little trickier, because it's a siloed system. The police are, fall under the city, the uh, jails and the sheriff fall under the county, and the court system falls at the state level. And it's all siloed, and we're not working well together. And the, the state has cut, um, cut millions of dollars in the past decade for things like family courts and drug courts and interventions that are proven to work. It, it, to keep people out of the system in the fr first place and to deal with the chaos that's going on in some of these neighborhoods and some of these families that now we expect the police to solve. Our city, the city council, 60% of our general fund 
goes to public safety. That's police and fire. But that is most of what we do. This, these past two years, and I see some of my colleagues here, we unanimously funded the request that the, the police chief asked for in terms of officers, but that goes back to 2008 for the resources he needed back in 2008. Right. So, it, it, you know, this goes beyond police officers and cars and the, the tools that they need. This goes beyond our public health system, our mental health system, our court system, and we've got to figure out how to get out of these silos and work better together as a system to keep people out of the system in the first place and get them the help they need. Because even though CMPD has programs and the city has programs, Gemini, you say that we have nothing to offer these young people to keep them from going down a bad road and that there isn't enough support from the city. So what kinds of support program support, et cetera, do we need? Well, I feel as though one of, our <clears throat> one of our main things that we need is individuals when they're being released that, that society probably doesn't know is that over 80% of the people that are incarcerated right now shall one day come back into our community. Mm -hmm. yeah. And once they're released, this is a key vital point, because once they're released, they have nothing. They have nothing, nowhere to go, nothing to do. So like the chief said, they start resorting back to means of getting money or doing things like this. Not that they want to, but because of that little box that's on the application, same thing that I'm going through right now today. Daily, I go through it, trying to find a decent job to take care of my own family. But I just refuse to go back to anything that I was doing. So this is, but everybody don't think like me. So we have to find something when these individuals are released, because they have nothing while they're incarcerated, there is nothing in there. When I tell you nothing, I mean nothing for his rehabilitation. So once they're released, if we can have some type of programs for them once they're released to help them transition back into society, you would be surprised the impact that it would have on our younger kids that are looking up to these individuals as they're being released. Because this is, this is one of the problems that we don't have. Mm. You want prevention? prevent the individual once he's released from going back to jail by having him an opportunity to prevent going back to jail. He'll help your kids that's out there in the streets right now. So, Julie, we have 20 seconds, but is there political will for any of this, or are you in the tiny minority? I don't think there is unified political will. I don't see the city, county, state working together. And in fact, I see a lot of the um, levels of government working against each other. Mm. Julie Gossel is a member of Charlotte City Council. Gemini Boyd is the founder of Project Bolt. And Kerr Putney is the chief of, of police. And I want to thank you and all of our other guests for participating in this public conversation on the homicide count in Charlotte from Friendship Missionary Baptist Church on WFAE.